0: Welcome to Art Fictions, the podcast which brings you stories of art and the art of stories, where each guest selects a book which we discuss as a springboard to their art practice. Art Fictions was created, produced, and today is hosted by me, artist Gillian Knipe. And this is just about the quickest intro ever because, wow, this episode's guest the multi-talented, multi-disciplinary artist Melanie Jackson and I can really talk. Please listen to the very end to hear the add-on chit-chat between us. Otherwise, it's all about the complicated truth, social housing, synthetic biology, persistent amnesia, the strangeness of reality, and working with and beyond language, as well as spiders, Bambi, and Thumper, the rabbit. So, are you ready to start? I think so. Okay, let's give it a go. Uh, welcome to art fictions, Melanie Jackson. Thank you very much. You've selected Corey Fader's Social Mobility," written by Isabel Wagner, published by Hamish Hamilton, part of Penguin Random House in 2023. Isabel Waner is a German-British writer and cultural theorist. They're based in London and have written four novels. In 2021, at a public online event, the author was announced winner of the Goldsmiths Prize for their third novel, Sterling Carrot Gold. Have you read that? I'm just starting it now. Oh, okay. So during the ceremony for this prize that they've won, one of the judges congratulated Bader for their ability to combine the real and the mythic, the beautiful and the grotesque, to mind-bending effect. In a strange twist of reality meets fiction, because of lockdown, there was no one at Goldsmiths to make the usual customised trophy. Instead, Fadner received only the £10,000 prize money. This became the springboard for the novel we're discussing today, which centres around Corey Farr and their soulmate and partner Drew. Corey has won an award for the fictionalization of social evils and states, like most working class people, I assumed, wrongly, the award's value was monetary rather than its prestige and social power. Corey is told that they will only get the money if they can track down the missing trophy themselves. Do it quickly, the prize coordinator says, before the judges change their minds, and so begins a story leaping from the past to the present via darkened Disney characters, TV watching, love and murder as we follow Corey Farr's efforts to retrieve their trophy only to have its replacement roll down a gentle slope and into a shallow ditch where it lay like a squandered opportunity. <laughs> it was very funny. <laughs> uh, So, Melanie, tell me about your impression of the Borg, why you chose it.
1: Over to you. Thank you. Um, I found this an invigorating book to read. It feels at once that it addressed the kind of moment we're in, but also it had huge personal resonances for various reasons with the course of my own life, my experiences of London, my experiences of kind of art scenes and class experience i think what's interesting in all of this taking account for oneself as well one's own ethical position they kind of acknowledge marginalization but then once the prize is there she has a personal reckoning to do as well of how to proceed you know how how the prize might change a life and i think that's implicit in the second half of the book as well can you say a bit more about that well, the, in the second half of the book, as you know, they constantly second-guessing. Should I become the, the reality TV host? How do I perform with my fans who are cheering me on, who I've kind of left behind? Uh, how do I treat my lover now? Now I'm the famous one. And also reckoning with history, and queer history, I guess, with, mm. with uh, Joe Orton, who is a kind of core character and mo- motif that runs through the book.
0: Yeah, Absolutely, and we'll get on to that in a moment. So how did you come across it?
1: Um, I came across it when a friend, Kirsten Cook, came to stay in... I've got a small archive of artists' books and publishing and uh, affordable editions. That's a kind of the bit of the art market that interests me, affordable being affordable to me, which is usually less than 100 quid. Mm. <laughs> um, and I've got a studio out of London. And she came to stay and bought it with her. But I had already pre-ordered it, so it was um, a really nice resonance, you know, when a friend is reading the same thing. As I said, there were just so many resonances with my life, with Animal Familiars via Bambi, which is kind of known to nearly everyone. With digital space, with reality TV. And I loved the fact that so many locations in the city, which has been kind of made strange by different linguistic turns and different time frames I could lay over a reality so actual spaces to fictional ones or science fiction devices of the wormhole and time travel which we kind of have within our own lives right anyway and as you get older that becomes more extreme.
0: So it does flip between the implication of what did you make of this like a rundown part of a European city today and London at various points in the past?
1: Well, um, what I thought was interesting is it's setting in what is thinly disguised Arnold Circus, just up the road from here, where we're recording today, in Bethnal Green. Um, And it's next local authority estate, well, it's still a local authority estate, but they are living under under different terms. But I think there are so many estates in London that were built in different ideological time periods, when there Mm. were different imperatives about how much space one deserved, whether one needed outdoor space, whether one needed separation from one's neighbours. So when I first had social housing, I was given a Guinness Trust flat, which when it had been built, had been built for single mothers. So there was a degree of shame attached to it. The walls deliberately made very thin and all the uh, facilities were on shared corridors. So they had a certain amount of kind of humility and apology and gratitude attached to being allocated those flats and so the older women that lived there had all been allocated those in the 50s and 60s and then when I lived there as a kind of liberated emancipated woman with my own key with my own bathroom they'd been converted there was an anger and a resentment that I could have men in that I could have privacy and I kind of totally got that, that there were all these different ideologies running about what social housing was for and who deserved it. I really like the way they use it as a structural device throughout the novel, looking at the architecture of the building. There's a really nice section where they go from the kind of natural, the bushes and the mm. trees and the hinting at the forest, which is to appear later up to the kind of tiers of housing and social services that are there. And I think London, like many cities, is fraught with that, with different architectural builds that are remnants of different ideological positions that jostle against each other. Yeah, Um, there
0: was actually... uh, I'm trying to remember it. There's actually an exhibition at the... Uh, the welcome collection a few years ago which was touching on those sort of idealistic social housing buildings and what their intention was and the horrible reality that they turned into but then I'm doing little air quotes here to correct that they then bulldozed them and people lost their homes yeah I mean that wasn't
1: the solution either all kinds of complexities though I guess Brutalist housing, can work if there's caretakers, if there's if there's support, they become quickly feral and unlivable in when the infrastructure isn't sustained or maintained. The estates were designed to have caretakers live in caretakers. They've removed those in the 80s.
0: Oh, I didn't realise yeah.
1: that. I mean, a lot of the problems with social housing is not implicit in the housing itself; it's the care that's taken of that housing, right? Right. And I've lived in local authority housing most of my life. Mm. So on my estate, there's fantastic, low-cost build houses made of wood and concrete panels. So they're incredibly cheap. They're the cost of flats for a great house. When Mm. they were built, they were built to be maintained and they were built to be low cost. Now the rents are higher. They're unmortgageable. There's all these different fault lines running through different Mm. eras and different governments and different you know, different local authority kind of decision making. Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, I certainly I live in an ex council flat, and we've spent the last twenty years correcting all the things that the council
1: it did, did wrong <laughs> and did really badly. What? How do you know it's a reference to Arnold Circus? Well, partly I just know because I know the architecture of it really well because okay. I used to live at the other end of the road. Okay. So at the other end of Columbia Road, and partly I could just feel it in its description. And uh, then I listened to an interview where she confirmed that.
0: Ah, okay. So, and, right. and
1: I think the, the way that language is introduced, there's, there's remnants of Polish and Czech. So that, that theme of you know, the Soviet empire falling down, fragmenting, coming into Europe, it is London and not London at the same time. That feels instantly familiar.
0: Yeah, there seems to be all these sort of liquid barriers, which is a contradiction in terms, I realise, between languages. Yeah. And you get things like, uh, at one point, Corey Farr has to go to collect their trophy from Cosmar Circus, which translates to Nightmare Circus. Which There's is also Arnold
1: Circus, which was a utopian estate. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah.
0: okay. I, thought, I thought there might be something there about that. Then there is an introduction of a talk show. It's filmed in the ghetto attendant studio, which means ghetto attack, which is, you know, cruelty towards people living in poverty, which ends up shifting to Procleti Field. And Procleti is a reference to The Damned. So there's all these... Really fun name games, I think, going on. And of course, we'll get a bit more into the names of the characters. But uh, just for now, there's also a lot of referencing. Obviously, you've touched on some of it to the Bambi story. Mm. You know, originally that was written by an Austrian and set in the woodlands of Europe. And you could say it's a very traditional part of the world and there's also Walt Disney himself who was a Republican, nationalist, conservative, anti communist. What were your thoughts on them picking up on the whole, you know, Walt Disney Enterprise? Even Florida rot comes into it, which is where Disney and is located.
1: Well it's yeah, it's that kind of theme park. Society is theme park. I mean, I think there's lots of different reasons, which is why it's so clever. Yeah. There's firstly the theme of abandonment by one's mother, which is a kind of core theme of fiction for children, and the legacies of orphan childrens huge in children's literature, where a child is sent out into the world and has to survive in some way, and it's a kind of um, metaphor for the child in each of us. I think that is. An orphan forever, to some right. extent, and it's also the lost child on every adult writer finding their way. And I think *Bambi* is—it's a, a hugely sentimentalized film, but mm. nevertheless, it kind of indicates the rupture with nature and human-animal relations that we're having to completely rethink at this period of climate change, species extinction, etc. So I think it's a really poignant symbol. It functions a little bit like an animal familiar or a spirit animal in a way that a lot of magical realism does, but it's kind of sci-fied up by being bred with a, a spider. <laughs> so. Yeah,
0: so just to say that there's this character that Cory refers to on the first page, so I'm not giving anything away there, of Bambi, which they then rename or refer to as Bambi Pavok, describing this animal as... On top of his famously unsteady legs, he had four spider's legs. Grand total was eight and multiple sets of eyes with four sets of eyelashes. And Pavok comes from Pavuk. No idea on pronunciation from me, sorry, Uh, which is a reference in Czech to the word spider. And, and like a common house spider, I think. So there's something...
1: Later, they get named out the false widow, which yeah. is a spider that's both indigenous to Britain and also came from South America uh, in the first importation of bananas, yeah. Which and it looks like a spider that can really hurt you, but it yeah. isn't. And yeah. so I think even its naming is really clever. Yeah. So uh, Bambi's father in this is... The a, false a, widow. A huge yeah. false widow. There's lots of sci-fi techniques that they've brought in to this kind of disnification mm. to disrupt it really mm. profoundly. Mm. But I thought also that it's a spirit animal of a kind of incarnation of a childhood self that carries on, it's other than spider, other than deer, other than human, um, but it's irreverent. And um, their relationship with it and their partner's relationship with carrying that traumatized childhood self is kind of really interestingly and carefully worked out later. And it also reminds me a little bit of a kind of meme animal. It's kind of almost like a digital glitch, a digital hybrid. And in fact, at the back of the novel, Isabel Vayner credits three of the most important sources for the yes, book, yes. which is really critical. So mm. one is a Nicole Eisenman drawing called Bambi Gregor, which was made in 1993 which they write about in this month's Freeze magazine, actually, and there's an image of it there if you want to see it, where they identify this Bambi-Spider hybrid, this kind of chimera, and then it becomes an intoxicant throughout the novel.
0: So is that Gregor
1: as a reference to
0: the Metamorphosis?
1: Yes, Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The novel is full of Kafkaesque references, right? With with sci-fi wormholes, which... I found really exciting and the third one which we've mentioned is John Lahr's biography of Joe Orton, Prick Up Your Ears, which was published in 1978 and which I read avidly as an undergraduate student So for me, there was a personal time travel, a personal literary time travel in this book as well.
0: Yeah, just to put that into context, there
1: is Sean St. Orton gets to the bottom of it or something. It's a talk show. Reality TV runs through it, doesn't it? It's a device that is a point of contention between them and their partner, as it is in many families, I'd say. Whether you can identify with reality TV or whether you find it excruciating.
0: But I think that's the thing is that it is both. It's intriguing and excruciating. So this this character, Sean St Orton, is described as a white working class talk show presenter born in 1933, which is, of course, a reference to the playwright Joe Orton. And Sean says that he'd escaped a domestic violence situation in 1967, he'd got out by disappearing through what he termed dia," which is a space and time defying passageway, a trans-dimensional wormhole. So that is, of course, a reference to uh, Joe Wharton being murdered by his lover in 1967. And this happens in the book on Kalapax Road, which is Hungarian for hammer, and that was used by Joe Orton's lover in real life to murder him. So at this point, if you don't know if I'm talking about the book or actual Joe Orton
1: or what, it's because
0: I'm confused myself.
1: (laughs) Because that's what the book does to you, right? Yeah, definitely. So... Joe Orton, appearing as St. Orton as a TV host. Which is lovely which is to fantastic, have canonised right? yeah. <laughs> Joe they, Orton. <laughs> they, they have escaped certain death, So he's a maverick TV host, deducing whether wormholes and tears in space-time exist, or whether they are hoax or mistakes. So yeah. he's got this whole pursuit of truth. And this is kind of really key to the whole novel. But Joe Orton also is a kind of literary precursor, coming from a working-class family, hyper-aware of structural inequality that prevented him and his family from living anywhere other than they did, you know, in in a kind of really dystopian industrial landscape of Leicestershire, which um, I come from the Midlands as well. It's a space I know so well and have seen cultures and societies, streets and areas decimated by both the, the industry that was there that completely suppresses imaginative escape from it. But then when that goes... You know, there is then not even any work to hold that culture together. So there's a kind of different kind of poverty that happens. Joe Orton's writing was really incredible for its time. And what was really interesting in his diaries was this kind of extremely active sexual practices of cottaging and picking guys up in toilets and various landscapes, which was a kind of hugely transformative way I suppose for me to read about in the early 80s when I first read it that that sexuality could exist in such a different form and space and time and with such different kind of social rules than the ways in which heterosexual middle-class couples I was at college with would get together and also which codes I didn't understand. I felt excluded from those, I felt Not included by Joe Orton, but immensely um, kind of shocked by his kind of bravery to pursue something that could also incriminate him. And also how irreverent and risk-taking that all was against his discipline as a writer, which was to um, incredible plot mastering making really complex but deflationary, absurdist scenarios and exchanges, mocking social mobility and social aspiration that, that kind of kept people small in, in industrial, working-class societies, but also totally acknowledging the, the kind of duplicity of the middle classes that prevented people rising, that, that is all about one's own trajectory forward through class and absolutely kind of squashing people behind you and pretending that violence isn't happening. Mm. And I think Mm. that's a kind of huge core theme of the book as well, Mm. Mm. which is why I think it's so important. And um, before we recorded, you asked if I identified myself as a working class person. And I kind of don't for a personal identity, but I certainly grew up in a working class family, in working class neighbourhoods and understand the frictions, blockages, structural exclusions that are there in certain times certainly now now education isn't free they're they're back you know they're back in a frightening way and as vaidner has said that you know it's it's not only important for fairness and access but for a much more expansive way of writing a novel. And that's what I loved about this. It hasn't got some of the cloying, tedious conventions of middle-class literary fiction. Yeah, that's
0: for sure. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, as as somebody who's written before and has had to work with editors who are, you know, a great help and often shape some of my writing into something a lot better. (laughs) And then I get to take credit for it (laughs) in some way. But what also happens is that when i have tried to write outside that box which i'm now focusing more on doing for my own studio practice once i inject a sort of sense of normally it's a it's about a sort of urgency in sequential wordings that don't really form proper sentences that all get struck out and I have to use all these conjunctions to elongate what I'm saying which takes all that speed out of it. Oh, the middle classes love conjunctions. I find, I find that really <laughs> annoying whereas Isabel Vaden, they have this sort of almost untidy way of writing so one of the examples would be why you come home from TV studio reeking of vodka why you come home yelling at me and There's something about that that reminded me of working with immigrants to this country. And I quite like the way they make a statement as a sentence and then say yes as a question mark at Mm -hmm. the end. Mm -hmm. You know, there's lots Mm -hmm. of different ways of using the English language, which I think actually profits from people, I don't know, technically getting it wrong.
1: Well, I think that's true in different class positions. Certainly growing up in England, you've got whole different vocabularies in different places. I grew up partly in Wales where it had been made illegal to speak Welsh and I was an English speaker in a Welsh speaking environment. We weren't allowed to speak Welsh at school but out of school everybody spoke Welsh and um, I am partly from Welsh heritage but we lost a language a long time ago and so I've always been really aware of that. That you, kind of sorry. Do, do,
0: yeah. Do you mean that's a social construct, or do you mean that was uh, there was a concerted effort to do? Oh that? no, it was
1: concerted effort. Oh right. I mean, it was illegal to speak Welsh. You get hit for it in school, yeah. and that's why in the nineteen seventies they were burning down English cottages and things. You know, it was a huge political exercise to bring right. that back. But that's true all over the world where Britain colonized. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, made indigenous languages illegal to use. Um, and then really interesting hybrid languages appear, right? Yeah. Really yeah. amazing ones. And I think Vaden is very sensitive to that in London.
0: Yeah. Well, you yeah. you just have to watch Top Boy and listen to exactly. the way people talk. Yeah, and yeah, 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 yeah. Far more interesting. And,
1: and, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I'm really excited yeah. the way that there's so much wrong with digital media and social media and, and the ways in which we're instrumentalised by kind of computerised culture now. But it's also, in terms of kind of, literary and textual invention I think people are incredibly inventive with it I get really excited by the way that uh, my kids invent new words and terms. They borrow Same. them from the States yeah. and TV, they make them up, make abbreviations up, they change the shift, the emphasis in different words. They also shift time, I
0: think. Yeah, you c- know.
1: certain words that are yeah. the 19th century words that are still in use in Jamaica and fallen out of use here get yeah. reintroduced with a new slant and yeah. a new meaning. Yeah. And well, it
0: keeps a language alive, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah.
1: So the book is very aware of those kind of ways in which language is policed, but also is endlessly inventive. So, yeah, I think this kind of middle-class desire to smooth things out, to take violence away, pretend that everything's nice, to pretend that that kind of the structure of polite English is critical, there's just a refusal to do that, right? And knowing that actually we do live in a reality that has all our different time periods that we grew up in concurrent in our own imaginations but also in traces on the street that there are different ideological imperatives running all at the same time we might have a right-wing government with a left-wing council yeah. we've got um, nostalgia to porn on TV in, in all kinds of programmes like um, you know fixing broken things and making people cry which is both... <laughs> <laughs> and home baking next to kind of extreme accelerationist techno-violence. You know, we we all live in that space of this kind of collaged reality, I think. Yeah,
0: that's so true. And yet there's this sort of overarching insistence of, um, say, for instance, the 1990 film The Nasty Girl, which it's based on a true story of Anna Rosmus, and she was a young woman who discovers the connections between her small South German town and the Third Reich. And so this sort of rural, beautiful landscape, pristine and green, is just ruined by this complicated truth mm. where you would have got, probably got a lot of people who saw that as the only way, compliance is the only way to survive. You get the same thing about, Collaboration that's a, and the sort of persistent amnesia around Vichy in France, and I'm sure in a lot of places in Australia, there's a lot of, you know, sort of carefree um, holiday destinations mm, that are stomping mm, on a history of cruelty towards the indigenous population.
1: Well, it sustains certain kind of myths that actually allow the self not to be examined, right, and and, yeah. and to pursue one's privilege, yeah, with a sense of entitlement coming back to kafka
0: this sort of metamorphosis and transformation there's a lovely part where bambi pavok or corey far says when first i arrived in the capital in 99 i hung upside down under the roof of a bike shelter outside the international bus station for several days unwilling to move by day three i'd lost two of my legs they fell off almost casually without fanfare by day four I discarded another one. I lost my hold and fell headfirst into the bike rack underneath. Give it another couple of days during which I just lay there, I was two-legged, too armed, and two-legged, to be precise. On day seven, I watched one of the limbs I'd shed, curled up, not looking like much, get picked up by the rotating brushes of a mechanical road sweeper. I took this as a sign to gather myself together, get up. And get a life. I was 15. So it's almost like the opposite of Kafka where Gregor turns into the bug
1: Mm -hmm. and
0: yet Corey Farr goes from some sort of bug
1: into a human. That's very yeah, but then, then Bambi reappears though That's right. right. That's right. Which is the kind of remnant of that unresolved self. It is unresolved. Coming back. Yeah. And and yeah. it's that what I like about this book is that it traces all these kind of social constructions and violences and whatever, but it also does not abdicate the, the work that one has to do to pull mm. oneself to cope with that, to work with that, to work at relationships, to work at being a writer to work at understanding one's own social kind of uh, potential and cultural capital and the compromises or not that one might make along the way. I think there's, there's, there's a lot in here.
0: Well, there's also the association, which is obvious, I suppose, between class and status. So, for instance, with regards to the prize, the prize coordinator says, you know, to Corey Farr, you seem a little naive, if you don't mind me saying, unversed in the intricacies of... Of award culture, <laughs> like there's such yeah, a thing yeah. as award culture. Come to think of it, it might be better off if you sent someone else to collect on your behalf, someone you could trust, ideally more than yourself, someone competent, an agent. <laughs> <laughs> let's not have an artist, a writer, in this case, you know, functioning in the world doing anything. But that's different. so much
1: like the relationship of curators and artists. Yeah, and
0: let's send us yeah. somebody with authority. Yeah, but it does remind me of. Um, there, there's a really serious part, which is, is probably too long for me to read out, but it sort of relates to a, a previous episode in this podcast between Odukemi Lijadu and Palumi Odubanjo, where they talk about the unnamed Arabs and the idea that death amongst the Arabs would not be as tragic to them yeah. as the protagonist's mother ought to be uh, to this person who's French. And it's the same here with Bambi Pavok as opposed to Bambi. If Bambi mm-hmm. Pavok dies, that's not as bad as if Bambi died. Or more realistically, if Bambi Pavok's mother died, which she does, that's not as tragic
1: yeah, yeah, as Bambi's yeah, mother, yeah, yeah, because
0: yeah. Bambi Pavok has been brought up amongst the shit, and
1: so, so they, they can they, suffer less, has less capacity yeah, for feeling, right? That's right. Yeah. Which I think is always humans throw on each other all the time, right? Yeah. And, and relative, the relative yeah. importance of one death or one life to another. Yeah. I think that's something that we constantly have to challenge and fight for. I think we see it now in what's going on in dreadful violence being perpetuated all over the world at the moment. But the problem is is that uh, there's always huge complexity behind that. Right? Those oversimplifications that, mm. that, that fiction that some people don't need passports, don't need housing, don't need means of travel, don't need quality food, don't need education, don't need treatment because it's within their culture that they can cope with less. Is is just they they constantly reappear, and I think this book, well, the the people in, it yeah very well
0: yeah well the people in your area um, who are elderly
1: don't need to get to public transport yeah don't need <laughs> yes. Or, or at least yeah. can't drive and can't leave their area by car, yeah. um, and they should all get a bicycle, which is the local message that's been sent to them. It's just yeah, you know. and and that's the thing is that
0: Isabel Vayner makes a point of bringing these stories into the very now. You know, there's a part where it, it says Bambi Pavok's fate leaves most of us stone cold and unbothered. We simply don't care what will happen to him. Not like we cared about Bambi in that rural cinema in the 40s, 50s, 60s and 70s, on TV in the 80s and 90s, or on YouTube 2000s and onwards. Bambi Pavok's inquisitive confrontational manner was like asking for it, needless to say. He started coming into his own as his father's plaything and stress ball to be squashed, chewed up and pelted as required. So the author is making a point that, you know, don't think this happened in the olden days. Mm-hmm. Don't think it happened in some sort of other world. And in fact, in, in the book, there's these 10 minute loops. It's handled in a comedic way, but it's really awful. This, you know, going on and on and on again
1: and again yeah, and again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's this kind of this need to both take a reckoning of your own complicity in cruelty, in emotional coldness, in cutting off friends, not engaging with the underdog, but then also the need for self-survival. Yeah. So not, not simply calling out other people's bad behaviour or naming your own victimhood, but the fact that there are complex, uncomfortable, unresolvable compromises yeah. that have to be made but need naming and owning up to. You know what I mean? There's a kind of dizzying rotation of that, which is really uh, brilliantly done i think the kind of ways in which cycles of history repeat you know this this is an ongoing cycle we have to fight marginalization again and again but we also have to fight the internalization of our own subjugation as well right and the internalization of i'm not good enough i'm not good enough to collect the prize yeah or and that's what i also love is that it's In this horror, there is also richness of experience that can be articulated. It just needs to find a different narrative form. I think it does really, really well. Yeah. And what is also touched upon is,
0: I think, the idea of the vulnerability of people with mental health problems. So there's this character, Mallory or Malachi Holoran. And Mallory is not a translation into Malachi. So I don't know... I'm not sure. I
1: actually heard an interview with Baden talking about all the different linguistic turns they make. And they've actually forgotten sometimes. Yeah, now. <laughs> where I'm from? not surprised. They're, they're yeah, living yeah, yeah. in this hybrid. But I think that's so interesting in terms of being a Londoner that you do live in this state of yeah. feeling like you're part of different communities you're not necessarily part of, but you're rubbing against them, which I think they register so well.
0: There's also the fact that Thumper, who's called Thumper, which I assume has got something to do with not pronouncing th and, yeah, and, and pronouncing it in, <laughs> <laughs> as f instead is, you know, quite a bully to Bambi and leads this taunt, but then gets his comeuppance in the most horrific way. But coming back to Mallory Holderen, well, I I mean, I did a whole nerdy thing and researched all these names and characters and all that sort of stuff, as I love to do, and found Friedrich Holderen, who was a German poet and philosopher, and his early life was stricken by the death of his father and then his loving stepfather and much of his adult life by his own mental illness accompanied by the neglect of his family. And this sort of links to something I read in the paper this morning about somebody with mental health problems or let's just say a vulnerable person making constant appeals about the unreasonable levels of noise in his apartment, him feeling trapped, and then he's eventually now suicided. So, you know, some of the abandonment that happens through the system, you know, can lead to the worst possible fate, obviously. Uh, but speaking of transformations, alternating times, mergings and crossings, wormholes and time loops, let's turn to your creative practice. So, Melanie, I've seen your work recently at Netflix and Block 336 and San Mai Gallery and the Welcome Collection as part of their brilliant milk exhibition. Each time there's variations on animation, sculpture, intensely researched text and installation, which includes objects, staging, multiple screens and so forth. You've done a number of collaborations with Professor Esther Leslie, including several publications. One of them is the Herb Flans, which accompanied an exhibition at the drawing room and the Erpflanz actually is Goethe's search for the original plant, which preempted Darwin's Origin of the Species. And also with Esther Leslie Deeper in the Pyramid, uh, which was a multimedia work, which has appeared in different iterations at the Grand Union in Birmingham, primary in Nottingham, banner repeater in London, and with the Sheriff throat version presented at the Wellcome Collection. Uh, You've been shortlisted, well done, for the Max Mara Prize and won the Gerwood Drawing Prize. So working with Esther Leslie results in an element of rich research. I have two books right here on my desk. uh, And essays accompanying your visual work. So what do you see as the main work in that circumstance? Because there's all the sort of physical... Aesthetic work and then there's the written work. So do you want to talk a bit about that?
1: Sure. Um, I guess I'm really interested in what art can do as an experience in its shifting registers and its ability to kind of run between abstraction, figuration, the diagrammatic pointing to kind of different timescales. Very excited by how art can do that and work with and beyond language. But I'm also really interested in the sociological and the historical and the ways in which the present is formed and and that uh, both histories and future technologies and the the ways they bounce off each other. I kind of don't want to make film essays. I realise that. I don't want to write a novel. But I do like working with kind of the strangeness of actual happening, the strangeness of reality, the strangeness of um, history and its cycles and fe- aspirations for future. So yeah, I started, I approached Esther first of all because I got really obsessed about the earth plantser, uh, which is a kind of um, prescient intuition of genetics that Goethe had. He kind of realised that there were algorithms basically in the growth of plants that were driving their final form and was very aware that if we can kind of harbour that or crack that, then that would give us clues to, to how things formed, both in physics and in biology. And, um, I was really interested in, the, in how that related to what was deemed synthetic biology, which has kind of moved on into a kind of different terminology now, I guess. But 10 years ago, it was a really big thing that what, we'd be able to, we'd be able to engineer things at the nanoscale. Because it's it's still like an early science and an early potential, they tried to imagine it always by growing things like gourds and pumpkins so big that we could live in them and that and the, their, their rhizomal structure could be their waterway. The scientists kind of struggled and trying to kind of project it into journalistic ease would come up with these kind of quite ridiculous examples of what could be grown you could grow a chair for instance out of wood rather than having to grow a tree yeah yeah so I became really interested in that and just approached Esther on her website she'd written a really nice piece about this kind of notion of how history is used and kind of intoxicant flashbacks into into histories that could let us know more about the present etc But what she hadn't written about so much was contemporary science and future science. Mostly it was historical. So we kind of had this lovely cross-fertilization of interests. And we just started a writing relationship. And so first of all, we wrote about plants, liquid crystals, emerging technologies. And she wrote separate books about those things, whereas I'd kind of go into making artworks. And then we got talking more and more and more, and I became really interested in this kind of animal-human relation. It seems so important to me, and milk seems such an important substance. We called it an industrial metaphysic. The property of both animal and human milk is is turned into something other than itself, Mm. into this kind of industrial staple and this chemical component. And so we decided that we'd actually collaborate on a book rather than me just exclusively visual and her exclusively literary and that was a really great way of structuring a book together through Mm. a series of email exchanges but I also like putting books within a kind of reading space so when you say, when you refer to the book, are you referring to Deeper in the Pyramid, Share of Throat? I am. We, we actually that's a second printing of it, right. and we wrote the original one was just called Deeper in the Pyramid. That's right. yeah, but I didn't yeah, want yeah. to disassociate it from the wider project, which was also okay. performances and lectures that we both give, okay. and also an installation. Yeah, didn't want the book to function as a kind of explanation of the artwork. I wanted it if you wanted to know more, if you were seduced by its flashing images or references, there was actually kind of careful, granular research that would tie so many
0: of these ideas together. So that's interesting that you use the phrase ties these things together, because the way I see it is that your work and obviously the text as... An expansion of the work, yeah, you know, borrows think. from a range of sources, so cultural and sociological politics, performance, documentary, science. But do you feel it is directed towards an end, or do you feel that it's looking at all these different aspects of of an issue? as if there's no one answer there are multiple truths there are multiple scenarios the
1: the complexity of it really matters so when i say tie them together i mean in the loosest possible yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) within the limitations of a physical page exactly and and, and you see in the book we used two beginnings and it ends in the middle hinting that it could kind of spiral out forever yeah And, and that's not to say that we haven't got an opinion or got ideology or things we think are right or wrong. It's just that we're very aware that we didn't want to use it and instrumentalize it to make a singular theory. You, you know, it, there's many different kind of art historical speculations going on in it through the guise of milk, I guess. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, that was such a perfect exhibition for you to be uh, involved in milk at the Welcome Collection. Uh, that brought in... Oh, Just such an extraordinary array of artists, but also a lot of craftsmanship that was developed around ways to house milk. There were also recordings from today's farmers and the impossibility now of small-scale farming. And also one farmer was talking really beautifully, but not romantically, just, you know, these... Animals are part of my family and we care for them. And this other sort of very non-industrial side of milk that I found completely fascinating. And your work in that, uh, you had a series of screens that were set quite high on the wall and they had a mix of pouring milk, I assume, uh, complicated collages, digital babies, sort of like models of babies. They're really weird. Animated doodling, cows and snakes and 2 and 3D cartoon characters. A mix of sounds like nursery rhymes, video games, what sounded like the deep tone of a meditation bowl. And you also ventured into smell Mm, at this point. mm, mm. So do you want to talk about that?
1: Well, I guess the curators of the show had seen our exhibition in 2018 and read the book. And so the fact that we brought all those kind of different craft industries and all those different perspectives into the book was part of the show then as well. So we became in it, but also the show became a kind of wider resonance of of our research Mm -hmm. as well, in that we brought all of those different kind of capacities together. So we were very interested in, you know, the body, the sensual, the act of breastfeeding and transmission and cultural memory, but the way that that gets abstracted turns into kind of, industrial myths and industrial practice all of that really mattered right um, and i've been working on this research for at least 10 years i went to animal research laboratories farms recorded cows recorded factories recorded ice cream being made it's in paper it's in all kinds of industrial staples. It's in paper. yeah those those entities the way it becomes of itself and not of itself And then inculcated it into cheesy dreams, into kind of mad, you know, the whole notion that if you eat too much cheese before sleep, there's uh, chemicals in cheese that both promote nightmares and sleep disturbance as well as sleep. So that was really important. But my son son is a perfumer and works with, um, hugely interested in the olfactory medium and what smell can do with memory and also cultural belonging. Um, He is doing it both with artists he's been invited to scent rooms at the VNA and is really interested in kind of cultural disruption and you know it's obviously a hugely colonized substance it, you know the whole notion of kind of exotic space and ownership so he's battling all that stuff within his work yeah, but as t- also tell us,
0: tell us his name so we can give him His name is a Ezra
1: Lloyd Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> And we were really interested in the both our relationship, we thought it was interesting that I would commission him, who'd grown up with this research, to think about um, milk as both a substance that was both um, warm and sugary, sweet, but could turn, could mm. become acid and very unpleasant in the mother-son relation, in, in the kind of milk in the world as an entity. So he uh, looks at some of the kind of chemical components in milk Brilliant. and made a scent for the work. Yeah I thought that was a fantastic idea and then you had this raised stage
0: sort of ground where you've got this tubing that sort of worms its way from the surface to underneath and these medieval looking vessels some of which appear like open-mouthed characters and then these bobbly spheres in a range of colours. Do you want to talk about sure. those
1: objects? They're milk molecules They're yeah. based on kind of lactones and various milk molecules and um, glazed in very contemporary colours that have flip technology. So they they remind us of the kind of digital screen as yeah. well. But i um, really interested in histories of porcelain and clay production as a kind of analogue of milk because clay like milk can be liquid, solid, powdered. It takes on a kind of viscerality of milk and was similarly kind of controlled and contained as part of an industrial heritage and industrial process in in the way that milk's whiteness was revered and often is taken by far-right groups to kind of signify a kind of cultural um, and biological lactose tolerance superiority fiction (laughs) <laughs> um, was also an, uh, through the whole of the British and European court system in the 18th century to to understand porcelain, to take its knowledge from China and 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 make it a kind of local thing, and that's that's also been a huge narrative. So we used it as a kind of analog for clay, mm. and then clay vessels obviously absorb milk fats, and so it's been a huge part of the archaeological record of mapping where humans migrated. And so, and also Margaret Thatcher was part of the invention of Mr Whippy I don't know if you know this No I <laughs> she do was actually go on. she trained as a food scientist before she became a politician right. and her innovation was to put pig fat into ice cream to make it like you know that uh, Mr Whippy ice cream Nice okay yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that still the case
0: Yeah Oh that's oh, I'm really, sorry. I wish I didn't know that <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are some truths that I'd like you to keep to yourself. <laughs> There's this really strong sense of exploring concepts, conceptually driven work, but also very much committed to a materiality in, mm. in making stuff with hands. So, do you consider your work to be sort of conceptually driven, or is it realised in a material way, or do you not think in those terms at all?
1: I do think in those terms, and I think. I'm really interested in the way that Vedner has to knit these cultural, visceral, personal, social influences together. That's why I think I identify with the books so much. Yeah. For me, there is no separation really between a conceptual practice and making one. Or at least in the most interesting work, no one part of making or thinking has been prioritised over another or... I don't always write. I don't always want there to be a book at the core of a project, but sometimes there just needs to be. But I'm always interested in looking at conceptual drivers, but also the fact that conceptual drivers exclude others. So there's always a conflict. I'm always interested in how how we make sense of those conflicted positions that we have to occupy.
0: Right. So you've also been talking uh, recently about... Your independent writing, and I I think we've both been talking about this, the development of writing within our own studio practice and Mm. what role that might have. How are you going? Mm.
1: It's hard, isn't it? (laughs) It's really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Much rather write about somebody else. I've got a series of things that I'm working through, Mm. which comes out of the old work, but fears in a slightly different direction well i'm really really interested in bringing some historical facts together some artifacts different visual cultures and histories and and this relationship of animal and human relationships which is often there in the background of my work and i'm obsessed there's a there's a bell in a church near where i live in dorset where i stay in dorset where the bell maker, in a small act of defiance, reversed the letters, and so instead of saying "love God," it says "love dog," <laughs> 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 and it's obsessing me. And there's so many things. When you make a bell, you make something called a false bell to start with, and so I, I've sort of heard about this. It, reminds me, it's basically a brick and concrete and mud kind of structure yeah, that yeah. you build. You then put these wax letters on it you know things that will become um inscription and then you make an outer shell and you you pour brass or bronze into the middle and but so there's lots of lovely chimes like the false widow the false bell the false mistake that i think is an act of insurrection possibly not an accident Um, i'm obsessed with that and i'm obsessed with my own kind of relationship with animals Pets, dogs, dogs which have been bred for horrible kind of lines of social control, echoes of kind of slavery and, you know, the ways in which different so-called breeds are kind of brought out. Yeah. And qualities put upon those. Really, so I'm, I'm picking that at the moment. Okay. Um, and then it's... So, so is it
0: starting with text?
1: It's then, It's or? starting... It never starts with just text right okay. it never, it, there's always a series of objects actions social histories potential futures all of these things swimming around in my head at the same God, time God, that's extraordinary because it sounds like a sort of mini mayhem but your work is really together so. <laughs> <laughs> in some way finding a structure is essential right and that is a misery and a huge pleasure. Yeah. And yeah. that's what I'm working through at the moment. But I kind of let myself, I trust myself enough to know that I can do all these bits of research simultaneously, making stuff, speculating on stuff, researching stuff through text, going to places, looking at old artefacts. I trust that it belongs together, so I will find a place to bring yeah. it together. So you, you talked
0: about animals and humans now a couple of times, and I understand the medieval it, beastry yeah i mean that's come up a few times that i think that was referred to in the block 336 yeah. show which was called okay give me a go at trying to pronounce the a bit of medieval <laughs> english
1: <laughs> that looks like text speak which is why i like it so much
0: specking
1: ryeboardy speaking obscenities yeah bad talk rude talk yeah. bawdy talk bawdy, yeah. bawdy speech ryeboard speech it's, it's a medieval word right. but for me it kind of also the way that the spelling reminds me of some kind of text abbreviation and i'm kind of love that that within some kind of old english is is a kind of new english and that was really drawing from a whole vernacular of kind of working class imagery that existed for about 400 years of european history that is not present in in any kind of art history that I was shown or told, which yeah, really fascinated
0: yeah. me. So this was a multi-screen piece where the film had monkeys, half people, half beasts, body parts, penis people, vagina people, sheep, dogs, cats, mice, bugs, and a seahorse. And they're doing things like cooking, pounding, metalworking, having sex, having babies, pushing wheelbarrows, travelling in boats... Uh, In fact, I found a description of that installation, which describes it as a procession of pilgrims, a carnival of conceptual nomads. I love that, conceptual nomads, that jostle and jive, fight, fuck and take flight across a trans-historical plane of existence of which we are as much participants as voyeurs. Because, of course, in the installation, there's not just the screens, there's a lot of the objects that appear in the films there's rudimentary domestic objects like draping ropes and fabric there's sculptures of speared snakes and fish this is all around these sort of
1: body badges which mm-hmm. i knew nothing about so can you describe where they come of from of course yeah in in the middle ages and the medieval period there was a huge production Of uh, metal alloy badges that would have been enamelled and have mirrors and various other kind of colourful, sparkling devices on them. One of the core ones was for pilgrimage, which was a kind of sanctioned tourist route, which was uh, a permissible way for all kinds of people from all classes to travel around Europe. And so it was one way in which single women could travel, for instance. And there are all kinds of arguments about who made these badges who wore them for what reason what role they played we just know that they were there are they literally badges they're literally badges about usually between two and ten centimeters some some tiny some much larger Um, And many of them are Catholic. Many of them show Catholic scenes and different kind of Mm. intercessions and often they were for illness or for protection or whatever intercession to a saint is being made by that travel. But equally, um, medieval people worked much shorter hours. There were many, many holidays. There were many acts of revelry and fun. Churches often were breweries at the same time. And as much as there were places of kind of enforced piety and social deference, there were also places where they had to cope with dissent and partying and drunkenness and whatever. And so there were kind of a whole series of counterparts to these Catholic badges, which are ones which are deeply secular and ridiculous. And many of them are to do with laughing at middle class pretension laughing at the kind of social and sexual codes of the middle classes which is so deeply hypocritical (laughs) so courtly love was all kind of celibate and about desire and a kind of intellectual love and a spiritual love but they also knew that you know the people that commissioned and read those things also had sex with prostitutes on the sly Hmm. so it was a kind of ridicule of all of that and a ridicule of the idea that sex could be contained or simple hence body parts, vulvas and penises, on wings, on horseback, flying out of control. Hmm. There are so many different theories of how they functioned. What we do know that they're very kind of basically made. You just scratch out uh, the image or the sculpture in a piece of cuttlefish or in a soft stone and then pour a molten metal into it. They were made in their thousands by and for working class people and at the end in the Reformation and you know, the beginning of the Age of Enlightenment they weren't kept by any museums, they were just thrown away or absorbed into everyday life. So many have been found in waste sites and riverbeds across Europe. Mm. But for me it was really exciting as this kind of proto-pan-European project where ideas, images, jokes travelled across the whole continent That they were salacious, irreverent, hilarious. So um, in my lockdown time, (laughs) I just found as many as I could on digital archives and in books and drew one every day. I wanted to redraw them because I really wanted to kind of look at their detail and understand them, but also restore some of their colour and vivacity. Because after being in rivers for two or 300 years, they've mostly gone very dark, which is An interesting aesthetic in itself. At the medieval period, we believed in the four humours, these different drivers of chemicals and liquid forces that controlled the the spirit. And there is a theory now of testosterone, oestrogen, dopamine, and serotonin controlling us as personality types. And we can also see those things for the first time under a microscope. But the only way we can see them is to flood them with polarising light, which makes them look like rainbow crystals. And so I restored that colour onto them yeah. and had a bit of fun with this idea of a kind of delirium of I mean, because they're super duper trans- colourful. Yeah. I mean, the colour is just so rich and gorgeous.
0: and the And I thought it was really interesting that you had this sort of other driver to the colour. And I noticed in the book... There was reference, constant reference to almost like a, a color vignette from brown to dirty maroon and red, dark pink, In light Vegasburg. pink, yeah, and white. So I got a sense that all the time there was this flesh going on, yeah, and then there's just the green landscape, green, green, trees, 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 and it's so monotonous. Yeah, this. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think the other thing about that work, which really distinguishes it from the work that was in Milk, is how very uh, handmade all the images are. They're really analogue, whereas in the Deeper in the Pyramid, the work is imbued with all this sort of digital imagery and... It is all digitally animated,
1: Mm. but I wanted to find a way to bridge that space between the analogue and the digital, and not let digital aesthetics and software guide the look of my work, which it so easily does. Um, So I did hand draw everything in that, and used raw pigment, and I think partly in lockdown I just needed boosts of colour to get my own serotonin. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so there was a relationship directly between the scanner and the pigment, and the screen that I could really really push in a new way which is really exciting to me it didn't have to rely on its own pixels and color palettes within Photoshop or anything I mean obviously it's it's translated through those very fluidly
0: oh okay there's something about the way that you've
1: produced that work that
0: retains that sort of silly outrageous sense of fun i suppose because it feels so made and it leads us to the medieval and welsh poet gweville michael so the fact that there's this remembered female and welsh poet from medieval times is pretty amazing but she wrote, amongst other things, Poem to the Vagina, which is an all-encompassing idea of the divine prayer and flesh. I think we need some of that today, don't totally, we? Totally, totally.
1: <laughs> We're um, just so conservative and boring. I think she wrote Ode to the Vagina. It was published at the time in 60 different manuscripts, which for that period was you know mass publishing here. Yeah. And it took till 2021 for that to get translated into English and published, which is incredible, right? I know. But partly through that process I was talking about, where both the sexuality and language is suppressed as part of a colonising force, which we all know in various forms. And the poem is fantastic, right? It's kind yeah. of saying, forget my tits, go straight from the G-spot. <laughs> <laughs> but also as a kind of comic kind of uh, blast to a fellow poet. Coincidentally, I grew up in a village called uh, Hlandern Freidenmecken. That's her surname. She would have owned that whole parish and that whole territory. So that was kind of extraordinary yeah, to me. that I, 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 went, I went to primary school yeah, where she was, yeah. would have walked. Yeah. Would have known, would have been part of. Okay, cool.
0: <laughs> Let's move on to your most recent work, which was at San May Gallery and called Rouge Flambé, where there's lots of visuals around fire, flame, animation, kiln, sun, water, earth. Again, high screens. In this situation, much more unclear imagery, lots of intensely hot colours. I recognize a sun and an eclipse and then objects again in the room, including the red uakare. I
1: think uh, it's uakare? pronounced Ukari, I
0: think. uakari monkey. So I want to understand a little bit more about the story behind the title. There is an accompanying written piece. I think this is the first iteration.
1: It is. Of, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The title's Rouge Tremblay, is a kind of glaze. It's taken from the history of ceramics, basically, yeah. and... Um, China obviously was a world leader in the technologies of ceramic for a very long time, but in the period in which France and Britain tried to colonise China through the opium trade, they renamed everything with french terminology it's really extraordinary even now when you look at kind of museological histories of um, chinese glaze often it's given a french translation or a french name rather than oh, a chinese one embarrassing. and in the 1900s as there had been a race to understand porcelain there was a race to understand what Rouge, how to make these luminescent red glazes and lots of images were made of monkeys of dogs of these kind of Uh, Chinese kind of symbols that had all been from the looted materials. Anyways, a kind of whole period of colonial history which I knew nothing about until very recently. Mm. And didn't understand profoundly how um, those kind of cultural transmissions had happened. And I'm just beginning to unpick them. Do those monkeys still exist? They do. They're endangered. And the reason I chose them is partly because of British... To ape or to monkey is kind of t- to try and do what a human does but lesser. Whereas in China, the monkey is a symbol of tenacity and inventiveness and willfulness and cleverness. I was really interested how, you know, an animal can travel as a symbol or as a being but have such different. Like symbolic values and stuff, but also transcend them entirely. So, the Wakari monkey in the Amazon basin is called the Englishman. Yes, I, I discovered <laughs> be, that. <laughs> which is funny. Because it's bald and red faced. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I thought was hilarious, kind of riposte to the colonials they would have met at the time. But of course, in real life, the monkey is far more like it has these human connections. It's hunted, it's eaten, it's endangered from from indigenous. And colonial practices, you yeah. know. So it's, I, I wanted to kind of explore it as a thing in its own right, but also a kind of ridiculous place in which all these cultural collisions are being acted out.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: I mean, that thing of... The sort of shifting or mixed
0: meanings of symbols, oh, yeah, I find that really fascinating because there are global and historical ideas that, that are shared, mm. uh, but similarly, and I, I saw the appearance of the snake, for instance, in your Deeper in the Pyramid Share of Throat piece of work, but that that is a classic as an example of, you know, like the Garden of Eden where even. the... And the snake stir up action, mm-hmm. uh, which sees them outcast from the garden. And so there's this idea that the snake is evil, and Eve is, you know, really wayward. But then you get this other idea about this being a life giving move away from a sort of stagnation that you get with the ideal towards the real. Yeah. And then, as you have in this rouge flambeur, you get the um red of warning and danger anger shame joy luck hope you know it just goes from one end of the spectrum Mm. to the other and
1: actually the snake in deep in the pyramid is Mm. called a milk snake in america Uh, okay because when europeans first introduced milk to america they thought that um the snakes were stealing milk um, oh, and they okay. were called, so they were called milk snakes. It turns out snakes of lactose intolerant weren't having anything to do with the milk theft. That was probably their neighbours, and they were just there for the the rodents that would hang around the animal sheds. Of course. Okay. So it was this false blaming as well. That kind yeah. Of, that's why the snake was in that piece. But yeah. partly, yeah, this lovely narrative device going from one screen to the other. Gorgeous. As if it was kind of slipping through the technology. It's yeah. A digital
0: snake. That piece of work that was at San May, that was its introduction to the world. Is,
1: that's coming up somewhere else? It's coming up, but not till 2025. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so I've got a lead in for that one because I, I need to push it through to the next stage, right. which is quite slow. Okay. But um, Where else are we going to see your work in the near future? Then? In January, uh, Speaking body is going to go to Aspects Gallery in okay. Southampton, which is nice as a, as a solo. And then it will move its way around the country to Exeter in 2025, where it will join with Rouge Bay. So it's a delightful
0: <laughs> cross-country tour. And what about on your bookshelf? What else are you reading? Well, you've oh. told us already you're reading Isabel Vayner's uh, another book of hers. I per am, Aboard, and book?
1: I've had to write this down because my memory is not my greatest power. Afterglow by Eileen Miles, which I read a while ago okay and interestingly is is very well known to Fadner and very well known to Nicole Eisenman whose show is on at Whitechapel at the moment mm-hmm. and I think they're friends but it's the most stunning stunning um reverie on animals humans and all the actions in between and also Brian Massumi he's a philosopher wrote a really important book called um, what animals teach us about politics oh, okay <laughs> which is a really complex and difficult but very clever read, Mm. which I read when I was doing Deeper in the Pyramid but need to revisit. Mm. Do you think
0: there's something about this, you know, keeping the work or keeping aspects of the work connected to animals, which connects to humans as animals, which keeps things sort of, you know, grounded, real... Um, yeah and I think not well, lofty not idealized
1: well I think that's where the Musumi book's great because it's yeah. both lofty and not lofty at the same time okay it's it's talking about difference about language about how we organize inclusion and exclusion thinking about mutuality Thinking not only about a kind of ethics of entanglement, but actually a politics of action. Mm. And I think that's why it keeps me going. It's like we forget that we're animal at our peril because it makes us think that we're beyond important complexities that animals have. One thing, other kinds of intelligence, other kinds of support structures.
0: I think that other kinds of intelligence area is really, really interesting because we do evaluate... By personifying animals, what's what's that term called when you do that?
1: Anthropomorphism. (laughs) That word.
0: (laughs) I can't say that, so thank you. Uh, When we do that, we impose some idea that our intelligence is the intelligence and everything else is relative
1: to that. You know, there's so much to understand about that. Misumi starts off his book with this knowledge that how animals play, yeah. where they could bite each other, but the play is all about the refrain from biting. Yes. So it's about that doing, not doing, holding mm. back. And there's so much complexity in that, that we ignore. Anthropomorphism not only denies their own interior intelligence, it makes stupid our intelligence as well. Somehow. Yeah. All the things that we kind of say separate us from animals later become nonsense in that we know that they use tools, they use navigation systems, they use their sensory organs differently in other ways. They mark territory, but also within that marking is not just a simplistic, this is mine, this is yours. It's saying when I was there, whether I'm sexually available, whether I'm up for playing or not, what time I visited. So there's so many different things going on there. And the fact that the universe would happen with all its great intelligence with or without us as well. Absolutely, yeah. There's a sort of obliviousness towards us. We are just
0: not necessary, let's face it. In fact, we're quite destructive. Of course, there's the imperative that if we connect ourselves to animals, we connect ourselves to their welfare. Mm. I mean, that's so obvious, especially now. Mm. when it's hypercritical in the context of the environment, because it's not much of an extension to go from animals to the environment that they... No, no, exactly.
1: In. We were talking earlier about the way that we kind of, other humans as having less or complex needs than us. Mm. We rehearse that on each other, we rehearse mm. it on animals. But that's not to say there isn't violence in the animal world, right? And we need to learn from that as well. Well,
0: that's the, thing. the other aspect um, that I find really interesting, because... I quite like that I'm born in the year of the monkey because the monkey is really, (laughs) you know, (laughs) quick-witted and uh, clever. doesn't have a very long attention span, which is definitely me. But then, uh, of course, you know, the monkey that we're derived from is bloody murderous and, Mm. you know, a really uh, nasty animal at times, as are we. As are most, (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> let's not end on that no note. <laughs> no but that's but it's Say about perspective pleasant. it's about perspective yeah and that's the reason i use the sun in my last piece of okay, work okay. because it is the thing that gives us life on this planet mm-hmm. completely mm-hmm. get too close to it and it's this seething writhing spilling organ of such huge destruction that also
0: relates to the center of the Earth, the core of the Earth, most yeah. of the Earth that we actually don't know about, but can only propose, which is that huge
1: fiery ball well, moving center style to yes. us. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which is why Iceland used to be in before we kind of invented the whole of hell was considered to be before we othered others and mm. saw kind of non Christians as as. Uh, Others that needed to be Christianized, Iceland was seen as the, mm. as the portal to hell oh, because yeah. of all its geysers and volcanoes, yeah. and, and you could witness lava and things like that. So the north used to be the, the place that was dreaded and terra incognita, as you know from being Australian.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Another dire note. Okay. Well, oh yes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but animals. Okay, the yeah. fur, animal skin. I mean, there's so much joy to be had, right? And that's, that's one use of the beastery. The beastery is actually a kind of very, very dark Christian tract yeah. which ties animals into Christian ideology, always in their position of subservience relative to us. What I love about them is that the animals seem to migrate from it. They migrate from the text, yeah. they migrate from the ideology, and bestiaries became to be loved for what other qualities the illustrated and the animals with, their shininess, their empathy, their mutuality, their joy, their colour, their vivacity, and they seem to kind of leap from the page and leave some of that really damning ideology behind. Hmm. There is hope after all. We, we I... have to, we have to, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is a whole other topic that I'd love to um, talk more and more about but I think we should leave it there thank you very much Melanie Jackson for being on Art Fictions thank you thanks to you lovely listeners and also to today's wonderful guest Melanie Jackson want to rate us yes please it helps other people to find the podcast want to support us another yes please via patreon.com slash podcast For this abridged podcast, Griffin Knipe wrote and performed the music, while Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our Jolly Logo. As always, happy listening, reading, seeing and making till next time. Just to say that Isabel Vadner and Corey Farr and Drew are all identified as they. Did
1: I say she? Yeah. Whoops. I have to apologise for my slippage of um, pronouns which is a kind of time travel of my own life and, and it yeah. is it is not not because I don't acknowledge people's uh, chosen pronouns it's it's poor memory and uh, time travel so yeah I'm getting yeah. there there were slippages that I wish I hadn't made and wanted to correct I don't even think it has to be naturalistic yeah I'll, I'll work something out yeah
0: yeah but research. given
1: that it's about glitches and slippages yeah. you know this novel is about glitches and slippages and time travel being queer in different eras having different identities in different eras and um this is the first time i've spoken about this author and this book and i think those slippages are you know are in my vocabulary but also finding articulation for the first time so yeah absolutely yeah. not intentional and i think can be corrected because I think this novel is forgiving of glitches and of one's trying to put oneself right.